Welcome to the Sports Card Lessons Podcast with your host, Big Ken, a retired teacher bringing you lessons each week he's learned in the hobby by taking you behind the table and inside the mind of a dealer and a collector. Sit back and relax. There won't be a test. The only thing being graded here is the cards. Welcome to the Sports Card Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Big Ken. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on a streaming service, please like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell. You'll be notified whenever I drop any new content. Welcome. Thanks for being here. How is everyone doing? I'm super excited for today's guest. Uh, we met through the hobby. We chat regularly. You know him on Instagram at Blanket, Collect, Blanket Card Collector. Welcome, Chris. Chris, how you doing today? I'm doing excellent, Ken. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks for being on. Thanks for coming on. Um, I have to ask first, Blanket Card Collector, where'd that name come from? Um, so it's a spinoff of my last name. Uh, my last name always got murdered when I was younger. So I, I'm not a big social media person. So when I established my IG account, um, a lot of people used to pronounce my last name as Blanket instead of what it actually is. So I just kind of went with that. Nice, nice. Um, and, and do people like when they when you send them when you talk to them in the hobby, do they know it's you? Like because of, uh, for of the most part, yeah. I mean, we've you know I've been on for quite a while. I mean, we've been we've been in the hobby for um, probably six years now. So yeah. a lot of the people on IG kind of know me already. Um, nice. I actually let I let my son kind of handle most of the of the social media stuff. Um, he's dime piece sports cards and that's our LLC as well. So I kind of let him run with most of the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, since you've already started, talk, let's talk to us about your journey and the hobby, mm -hmm. how you got started, how you guys, cause you do this with your son, right? Yeah. So yeah. Talk to us uh, a little bit about how you got into it and where you're at now. Yeah. So, uh, uh, uh probably a lot different than a lot of people. Um, you know, I wasn't a collector as a kid. So you hear all the stories of, you know, collected when I was a kid, got away from it, got back in during COVID type of stories. Mine's a little different. I wasn't a collector as a kid. Um, purely by chance, uh, a colleague, a work colleague of mine, I was playing in a golf outing, um, a charity golf outing. And his friend brought that he brought with him uh, from college owns an LCS here locally. Um, so as we're playing golf, he's telling me, um, because I work in investments, so he's telling me, you know, how the card market works and how their investments and how grading works. And so then I, I went into a shop, bought a card for my son. Um, first card we bought, LeBron 221, white border 221. Um, so bought him a card, explained what it is and the whole grading process with PSA, and then eventually bought another card and then another card. And after a while, I was going in the shop and I start seeing these guys ripping wax and I'm like, what's going on here? What, what are they doing? And they're explaining it to me and what the process is. And so the next thing you know, I'm ripping some wax. And and from there, it, we got full force into it. Um, so this was 2018. So Luca's, Luca's year is kind of when this was all starting. And then over time, my son and I just got pretty heavily involved. And do shows like we started doing shows pretty frequently um much like where you're at we've got a lot of local shows so pretty much every weekend there's a local show you know 30 40 50 table type of stuff 
And then eventually we started traveling into some of the bigger shows and, you know, national and Dallas and, you know, get hitting some of the bigger shows um, on a national level. And now we're, I mean, we probably average um, one to two shows a month, uh, ranging from local to, to all over. We don't do the local as much just because after you've been to Dallas or after you've been to the national or, you know, some of these big shows, the local shows don't quite hit the same. No, no, uh, so. no. Yeah. Sometimes, some, and they used to be at one point, the local shows were a great place to pick up inventory, right? Mm-hmm. You know, where you, I'm going to hit the local show, I'm going to buy up a bunch of inventory, and then I'm going to take it to the Dallas or any of these bigger shows and sell it. But but sometimes that that that's not really working out that well either. So, so let me ask you just on what you said there. Um, so did you get in before the hobby boom? I mean, the COVID boom? Yes. So, yeah, so, so uh, you guys- yeah, we were ripping, we were ripping wax in 2018. So, you know, thinking, thinking of, you know, prism blasters and, you know, cello yeah. packs of um, lots of, lots of crown and revolution. And um, so 18 and 19, we, we bought, sold a lot, ripped a lot of wax, graded a lot of stuff. Um, and then really just because of my investment background, I, I, I probably look at this from a different lens than a lot of people. So once we got into the COVID times, my son and I were doing a lot of like the retail chasing. I mean, we spent a lot of time, you know, in line at at Walmart and and our local Meyer trying to get retail, you know, there at three in the morning for a seven o'clock open waiting in line. And it was more it was more fun. Like we weren't reselling it. We were ripping it all. And, you know, I mean, when you have teenage, you've gone through this when your kids get to be teenagers, you're not real cool and they don't want to hang out with you. So these were times where me and him were hanging out for two, three, four hours. And it was, it was more the thrill of the chase than it was, you know, the, the monetary aspect. Yeah. But then after that started to die off the risk to reward trade-off now for ripping wax is just, it's just too extreme. You used to be able to, you know, either, get good hits or grade your way out of a lot of it. And now the, the risk to reward trade-off is just too extreme. And I just look at it as 99% of the time you're, you're going to lose money. So we just, other than an occasional, you know, blaster or something that we might pick up just for fun, we really don't rip wax. Um, we don't really do much in the way of breaking. Um, I, I have been, a somewhat active whatnot participant um, just because you can get some good deals, but we've kind of stayed away from ripping and, and breaks just because the risk to reward trade-off just doesn't, doesn't seem like it's there. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I know I feel the same way. There used to be a time when you were opening the boxes that, yeah, you could, you know, especially if you were setting up. So if you didn't set up, right, you had nowhere to outlet these cards. You just had to hope for, for great hits, you know, and I say outlet the cards like you can always outlet a hit, but like, you know, say in the football, the Don Russ, like rated rookie cards and things like that. If you set up as a dealer like I did, you could put those all in, in a box and sell them all for two dollars a card. Right. And and you're 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 gaining back your, you know, some of your investment into these into these boxes. But, you know, I I today it's it's much harder to do that and as and i talk about it but i love the rip wax i i'm telling you right now i, do too. I love 
I love doing it, and I still will will stop. And and yesterday, I I, I stopped at the Target yesterday and picked up some Prism Blasters and came home and opened them up, knowing I have a show this weekend that if I hit something good, you know, I could sell it. I could grade it or I could just drop them in a box and, and sell, you know, hope to sell the cards. But yeah. 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 So I mean, it sounded like I had a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I had a conversation with my son in terms of risk reward trade-offs or ripping. I mean, so you think about a, a prism blaster and what your potential hit out of that could be. And, you know, we were looking at some things and the best case scenario is you could pull a, a Stroud silver or, you know, yep. whatever the card may be. And even if you hit the best card, you may not cover the price of what the box cost you. And and yep. chances of you hitting the best card are pretty slim. So yeah, yep. that's what I talk about, you know, risk to reward. So 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 and, and here and here is the even the harder part. You do hit that Stroud silver or the Anthony Richardson silver, and you're like ah running around the house right look what i got and then you put it underneath the the magnifying glass and you see there's a dimple or there's a, a corner mm -hmm. is is bent or something and you're like oh my god now what i mean the card is unless you can clean that card up to grade it, it you've got to pass that card on to somebody else right yep and, and you know 2018 2019 when we were opening i mean i, I remember opening crown and revolution and you know, they were $75, $100 a box. I mean, Prism was, you know, $150, $200. Worst case, you could grade your way out of that stuff. But yeah. when you're paying $900, $1,000 for a box, it's hard to make money doing that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Those prices went up so fast, especially on those hobby boxes. But I think that had a lot to do with the breakers, right? Once the breakers it, really it got in, yeah, it got into yeah. full. And, and you talked about uh, whatnot. That was what getting into breaks when you were doing. Yeah, well, so so whatnot's a lot more of um, just single auctions. So okay. you know these guys are these guys are running auctions starting at a dollar, and you know you may watch a stream and they may do a hundred, hundred and fifty auctions a night. Um, they're so fast you can't comp stuff. So you're just kind of using good judgment to buy stuff and. Yeah. Sometimes you can get really good deals, sometimes not. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's what they hope for. The no. guys who really know what they're doing, they'll know what the, and other people who are like, oh, that looks like a great card. And they buy it and then they may find out, oh, I spent $5 on a $1 card or something like that. Yeah. 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 Yep. And we've got yep. a couple of our, we, we talked before, kind of your Wolfpack mm -hmm. concept. Of, you know, we've, along the way, we've gathered some friends that when we, when we travel or we go to shows, we set up together. A lot of times we'll travel together and we've got a couple of our really good friends that, that are kind of in our group that, that do whatnot streams a couple nights, a couple nights a week. So. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. Nice. So you got the inside track on it as well. Um, well, and it's a good way to your point of, you know, setting up at a show and doing your value boxes. It's a really good way to, to move a lot of stuff because you can, you know, if they're running a couple auctions a week at, you know, a hundred auctions, 150 auctions a night, you can move through some volume of, of cards. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, uh, do you and your son, do you guys have your own PC? Is there players or a sport that you guys PC? Um, used to have a lot more PC stuff. Um, really, uh, again, that risk to reward thing, you know, when valuations, 
there was a point where you could tell that the market was very frothy um, and the valuations just, there's no way they were going to hold those levels. So we sold a lot of stuff um, and cashed out a lot of things when I thought there was no way we're going to maintain these prices. Yeah. Um, and then over time, we've gradually sold a lot of stuff just purely from a valuation standpoint. Um, my son, ironically, we're from Indianapolis, so he he PCs Marvin Harrison and Reggie Wayne, um, which luckily for him, fairly inexpensive mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, I typically I'm a, I'm a big LeBron because I think mm -hmm. long term. It's, you know, I, I look at this from a stock perspective of buying like blue chip stocks. So long term, I think LeBron's a, a fairly safe long term bet, but still has upside because he's still playing. Mm -hmm. And then um, like Giannis, Curry, that type of stuff. Um, so a lot I of, don't. A lot of basketball for you. Yeah, I, I predominantly do basketball. My son's kind of more basketball, football. I've dove into a lot more football recently. Mm -hmm. Um we talked before, I, I kind of stay in my lane. Um, you get into football, you got to learn a whole new set, new coloring, different numbering. And then baseball, I know nothing about. Hockey, I know nothing about. I've dabbled a little bit with some Pokemon, trying to get my daughter kind of involved in the hobby. Um, but I, I kind of stay in my lane. You know, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. Yeah. So what, in your cases at the show, what do you sell? If I walk up to the table and I look into your cases, what am I seeing? It's going to be predominantly basketball and football, um, yeah. mostly what you would call ultra modern. I mean, yeah. as the, the the as far back as I typically go is like a LeBron, maybe a Kobe. Um, yeah. Occasionally, we'll have some some one off Jordan stuff, but don't really dabble in a lot of older vintage stuff. It's predominantly all ultra modern uh, basketball and football. Do, do you have a price range like in your case? Do you say like there's a sweet spot, sweet spot between like two to five hundred or three to eight hundred or eight to fifteen hundred? Is there is there a price range or are you just whatever? It's, you um, it's kind of changed over time. You know, it, it, if you think back a year, two years ago, three years ago, I think the sweet spot was really in that one thousand to five thousand category, maybe. Um, and then over the last probably year, year and a half, and we talked a little bit about this, just the macroeconomics of the of, of what's going on, um, velocity of money and, and money in the system. Yeah, I think the sweet spot now is more, um, you know, in that 100 to 500 range. You know, once you get and you've talked a lot about this, once you get over 2000, 2500, you start getting into that category you've really limited your potential target audience of who's going to buy that stuff. Yep. Two years ago, that was, that was really where you wanted to be. So I <laughs> yeah. think part of, especially setting up and going to shows is adaptability and, you know, gauging what's going on and, and, and adapting to that. And if you don't, you're going to get left behind. It's funny when I first started the podcast, I talked about it was always trade, you know, like trading up as fast as you can, like getting these yep. cards and taking these five cards and some cash and getting up to this card and then doing that two or three times and then taking those three cards and some cash and get up. And it was a race to see, you know, like get up to those four or five, six, seven thousand dollar cards because that's that's what everybody wanted at these shows. 
And now, now it seems like you go around the people that have those cards, they're either not in their case or they're in their case, but you know, nobody's even looking at them anymore. You know, everybody wants these lower end, you know, quick hits, quick moving cards. Yeah. Something that, that everybody can afford. And I, I think a lot of that is, you know, obviously the margins, you know, play a factor. So, you know, 80% of a $5,000 card is a, is a hit 80% of a $500 card is not as bad. But I also think from an economic perspective, we went through this, this phase of COVID where everybody was at home, you couldn't do anything. So you're literally just sitting at home stockpiling money and you had no place to spend it. And then you have government stimulus and the amount of capital that was injected into the system, zero interest rates. So you couldn't earn anything on your cash. And now we're in a totally different scenario where cash is a little harder to come by for most people. Interest rates are are where I can actually park money and get paid to have cash now. So for a lot of people going out and spending five, ten thousand dollars on a card, not knowing if it's going to go up or down in value versus buying a CD and getting paid five and a half percent, one sounds better than the other. Yeah, absolutely. Um so as far as your your setting up as a dealer, what where do you pick up your inventory? What's your main where do you where do you go to um, look to, to get inventory to put in your cases? I mean, I know you talked about what so whatnot a little. Yeah, that's been a little bit of a challenge because I try to and, and my son and I we 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 kind of try to stay off of eBay and PWCC and all because when you buy that stuff. You could make the best purchase of your life, but when you go to sell it, somebody's going to use that comp against you. Um, okay. So, you know, a thousand dollar card, I happen to be at the right place at the right time and snipe it for 600, knowing that it should be a thousand dollar card. But then when I go to sell it, somebody's going to use that 600 comp and try to buy it for five. Yeah. Um, so we try to stay off the grid in terms of what we're buying. So that way people can't use our comps against us. Um, so mm-hmm. typically shows or um, my son's pretty active on on Discord, uh, Ryan's Discord uh, and then IG. That's kind of where we try to stay. Not yep. to say we don't do some stuff on eBay and, and PWCC and all, but we we try to stay off the grid in terms of what we're buying. Yeah, I, I agree 100 percent. I'll go on eBay uh, to to buy singles of cards that nobody's buying that I'm hoping to grade, right? Or if I'm buying from my PC. So, you know, I do a lot of women's soccer right now. So that market is way down. So, I mean, it's, it's like a field day for me right now to be, you know, buying these cards that, you know, six, eight months ago, they were, you know, say three, $400. And now I'm picking them up for 60 and $70, right? And, and that, that, those, those values may go down even more, but a lot of them I'm just buying to keep, right? So in that case, if it's a PC card, I don't mind it. But if I was buying to to flip, you're right, it, it's hard. And I've, I've seen this at so many shows. I've done this at shows. I've gone up and seen a card. And I'll, and what I do now is when I, I see the card, I usually look at the, if it's graded, I look at the last two serial numbers, right? And a lot of times when I look on, on eBay, I'll say, oh, that is the exact card. Not only did a card like that sell for $400 under what it should have, but that is the exact card, right? And the first thing they'll say, they'll be yeah. like, oh, I don't know what that comp was. It was, you know, that was a rogue comp. We can't go with that. And I'm like, well, that is the card, you know? So, 
Yeah, it's or, or even if you explain to even if you explain, hey, that was me. That's my comp. Yeah. Nobody cares. They're yeah. the the comps the comp, and that's what they're going to base the value on. So. Yep. And that and that's kind of a cheat code question for me because I and, and the listeners because we're always trying to find places, right? Where 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 do people where are people getting their cards that they can actually, you know, profit from buy and then you know move them and and it seemed to be okay now and and i just had brad on uh, my last episode outlaws sports cards and he said you know at point eight everybody is buying at 80 percent. like nobody's going to spend over 80 percent on anything so it, it it becomes a difficult thing to say okay well now i have to buy at 60 or 70 right in order to sell at 80 to make a profit on there right so it's uh mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's yep tough well and days. then we talked about this in Atlanta um you know the, the 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 dynamics of the show has changed a little bit now because of the repackers and and the repackers do a great job they they provide a lot of liquidity to the hobby they do a phenomenal job of doing it but those guys are in there as soon as the show's starting, if not before the show's starting. So by the time the show starts, you're walking around to dealers and anything that they wanted to unload at any type of a margin, they've already sold to the repackers. So like when we were in Atlanta the first day, we were having a really hard time. We went there cash heavy with the intention of buying and dealers really didn't want to work with us very much because they sold off the stuff already that they wanted to sell with margin. And then they were holding tight on everything else. So it's, again, that de- adaptability uh, of, of the a changing landscape. You, you just have to change what the times and figure it out. Yeah. So we uh, we met up at, at uh, Culture Collision in Atlanta. It, and I have to say that the, the, the hotel lobby trade night on Friday night, uh, reminded me of an old movie depicting the stock exchange floor, right? The, with the pit, and 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 you hand them the hand the guy to slip, and he runs into the pit, and he comes back out all disheveled, like, and it, it almost felt like like people were coming out with a car in their hand, you know, out of out of uh, you know out of that that mob of people. Uh, but it seemed like people were getting deals done, right? I mean, more. It, it just. To me, it just felt like, and and I'm going to ask you this, and if you felt the same way, because you and your son were very active at that trade night. You guys were in that pit, you know, going going back and forth with people. D- do you feel you get, you make better deals in those trade nights than you do at your table? Uh, 99% of the time, absolutely. Um it, we've always done better at trade night events than we have the shows and not, not to say the shows, you know, we have good shows, um, but the trade night events, like, I, you know, people's guards are down a little bit because it's not, you know, a one side of the aisle versus the other. You're, yeah. you're on equal footing. Yeah. Um, obviously when you're at the show, you're only seeing what the dealer has to offer. And then the dealer's getting to see what you want to show them. At trade night, it's pretty open. Like, you know, my case is sitting here. Let, can I dig through it? Absolutely. Yeah. So we typically get uh, as more deals done and better deals at trade night than we do the shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and, and that's my theory on that, too, is you get to see in everybody's case. Because I yeah. think trade night really wasn't really supposed to be for the dealers, right? When trade nights first came out, it was for everyone showing up at the show that – 
was going to go and try to trade amongst themselves and not buy and sell with dealers. But then it just turned into, well, wherever the trade night is, all the dealers are going to be there with, with the attendees. Right. And now everybody gets to look in everybody else's case and it's an even playing field. Right. Cause you yeah. don't know, like you, you, you didn't pay for this as much as anybody else. You know, you, nobody's paying for trade night. You're just showing up. It's not like being at a show where somebody says, well, Hey, I paid for this table. I did this. I need to, you know, make when you're out there, everybody's on an on, an even playing surface. Yep. Well, and and the margin conversation isn't quite uh, the same because if you're buying, obviously, but if you're trading, you know, it's comp to comp. It's not, you know, I have to be at this percentage to make this deal happen. So yeah. it's the negotiating process is much easier because it's you don't feel like you have to constantly have these conversations of buying at certain prices. Yeah. Um, I find it's great. Like in Atlanta, we were we were trying to buy stuff. We didn't really go with a lot of inventory. So we were trying to buy up. Um, and a lot of times because you can look through a person's entire case, it's a lot easier to find, you know, five, 10, 15 cards versus at a show where it's if a dealer's got one or two showcases, it's kind of hard sometimes to find 10 cards or 15 cards that you want to try to bulk into a deal. You know, yep. typically you find one or two. So trade night allows us to to probably find a little bit more in the way of bulk stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And do you do that? You try to do that by a lot of like mul- multiple buy in bulk, multiple cards. I mean, anytime you can, you know, especially when it comes to money, um, the more money you can throw at somebody, the better deals you're typically going to get. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, if we can buy 15 cards versus buying one card, we always try to do that. Yeah. Um, and at the show, it's it was especially the first day, it was really hard to find tables that had, you know, five, seven, 10, 15 cards that you wanted. Um, you'd find one or two. So it's really hard to get a bulk deal. But I've always said the more money you want to throw at somebody, the better deals you're going to get. So yeah. um, you start throwing hundred dollar bills down and it gets people's attention. So, yeah, absolutely. And and on the opposite hand, too, the 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 in this hobby. Uh, and especially at trade nights, but even in the hobby, just in general, the skills that a lot of these kids are learning, these negotiation skills and, and you know, it's unbelievable. Like some of these kids and, and I even have to question some kids. I'll be like, how old are you? Like, I, I mean, when I was your age, I was delivering newspapers, you know, for, you know, maybe 10 cents a house or something. I mean, I don't even know what, what I was getting paid to, to deliver newspapers, you know, and these kids, are, you know, they've got $10,000 worth of cards in their in their Zion box and, and they're pulling out rolls of hundreds and they're going back. And I'm just like, this is unbelievable to see, you know, and and, and some of these kids and I mean, I'm sure you could say the same thing. Some of these kids, you're going to say these kids are going to be running a corporation someday. I mean, there's just it, it, it would be like hard to believe that this kid doesn't go on to be to do something, you know, pretty fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the the, the people skills and the communication skills um, and not to say this in a negative way, but, you know, I see kind of the younger generation right now, everybody's caught up in their phones and social media. So you you go out and see kids sitting at a table and there's four kids and nobody's talking to each other because they all have their faces in their phones. Yeah. So the the eye to eye contact, the shaking of hands, the people skills and the communication skills, 
that go along with this hobby are huge. And it's not something that they're getting on a daily basis. Um, so my son is a junior in high school. Um, so when we go to big shows, he has to skip a day of school. You know, he has to, like when we left for Atlanta, we left Thursday right after school and he had to miss Friday of school. And the conversation that my wife and I have had is personally, I feel like he's learning way more on Friday at the show than he's probably going to learn Friday at school. Yeah. Um, from a, from a patient and a, and a personal perspective, but from a business perspective, I mean, how many, how many kids in grade school or middle school or high school are talking about profit margins and, you know, percentages of buying things, um, factoring in, you know, shipping and taxes and, you know, things that go into buying on a, on an eBay versus, uh, you know, in person. Those are skills that are not being taught. And these kids have it down to a science. I mean, yeah. my, my son is, um, I remember when we first started going to local shows, my son was about 12 and he would go do deals with, with guys and, you know, people your age, people my age, grown, grown men. And that here are this 12 year olds going up and trying to negotiate a deal. And the guys would always come over to me and just verify, hey, I'm doing this deal with your son. Here's what we're doing. Is this okay? Like, are you, are you on, on board with this? Um, and then over time, now those same guys are like, man, I, I don't even want to do deals with your son anymore. He's a shark. And I feel like I, I feel like I get raked over the coals. Um, I thought you were going to say, they come to your son and say, Hey, I'm doing this deal with your dad. Is it okay? <laughs> you know, uh, actually, ironically, yeah. Uh, ironically, we do that now. So my son, my son and I, because we have the uh, our LLC set up really as a business and we try to run it as a business. Um, it used to be he'd kind of do his thing. I do my thing. And then gradually we kind of merged everything together. Yeah. But now, because we're really looking at this from a business perspective, um, I, I joke around about this when we were in Atlanta, I'm trying to do some deals. And it's like, hold on, let me go talk to my business partner slash son to make sure that he's on board for this deal before I do it. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that's just kind of creating that mutual respect between, between us to, to where he feels like a true partner in the, you know, in the relationship. Nice. Nice. Well, since, since you've mentioned it, the, the LLC that you guys started, um, just talk to me a little bit about what's involved in doing that. Cause I think people who are listening are going to be very curious. I mean, I, 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 I know there's people out there in the hobby that think to themselves, should I make this a legitimate business? Should I, you know, and, and have thought about this. So if you just talk a little bit about what's involved in setting up an LLC, what the costs are and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as as you know, I'm a financial planner. I've been working in investments my whole career. So from the get go, I told people like, look, if you're going to do this, pay your taxes, because if you don't, eventually it's going to come back to bite you. So the LLC structure, very easy to set up. You can do it online if you want to you know, reach out to an attorney. It doesn't cost a lot to set up, but really it it creates an entity to where you can separate your personal versus your your hobby and your business side of it. So it creates a wall between your personal stuff and, and the business side. The big thing for for us was being able to factor in travel cost. You know, if we're driving to Atlanta and we've got hotel and food and 
you know, table space and, you know, how much are those expenses and the ability to write those off um, from a tax perspective, where if you're just doing this on your own, you know, you leave the you leave for the show with a Zion case and five grand in your pocket and you come back with what you come back with and you hope you made money. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. So there's really no accounting for what that what that show was for you. So we're able to look at, you know, here's what it costs to go to a show. Here's what it costs to pay for the table. Here's how much we spent on food. Um, and then what did we do? Did what, what did we buy? What did we sell? And we account for all of that to see, are we making money or not? Um, it allows us to evaluate on a show by show basis. Mm -hmm. Dallas is a phenomenal show, but it's not cheap to go there. Um, so we can then look back and say, you know, it's going to cost us X to go to this show. Do we have enough inventory to justify that cost? Or we can look back and say the last show we did X. So that helps us game plan for what to do into that next show. So it creates a paper trail and a, and a quantifiable method of saying, here's what I'm doing. Here's how I'm doing it. And at the end of the day, here's the end result. Am I actually making money doing this? Am I losing money doing this? Am I breaking even? And then you have to say, is it worth it or not? Yeah. I mean, you know, we all want to be successful in the hobby, in the hobby but I mean, when you talk about expenses versus sale, sales and profit, right? I mean... I go to shows and I just talked about this a few times on the podcast. I mean, I go to shows and say, I know the show is going to cost me $1,200 with travel and hotel and some food and table and things like that. Now, when I start selling cards, it's not that I'm selling $1,200 worth of cards. Like, Hey, I made my money back. Right. It's, I have to sell enough cards to create $1,200 in profit right? Just to break even on that. And then whatever comes after that has to be, you know, you have, and I think that's where a lot of us, a lot of people in the hobby, they get lost. They say, well, the show is expensive, but you know, I did 4,000 in sales. Okay. But what was the profit? I mean, but yeah, of that 4,000, you probably only had a $600 actual profit. The rest yeah. of it was just inventory that you sold off. Absolutely. Yeah. And then what happens? Do we, do we chalk some of that up for entertainment? Like, okay, I went out for a nice steak dinner. So do I do I say that $100 steak dinner, was that part of the business or was that mm -hmm. my entertainment? Would it, if I was home, would I have bought myself a steak dinner anyway? So do we take that or, out of the, you know? Or, or you look at it from a hobby perspective. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, whether you're running it as a business or not, it's still a hobby and it's supposed to be fun. So you know, if you took yourself out of that world and maybe you're a fisherman and your hobby is hanging, going out a couple times a year with your friends on a fishing trip. Well, what's the cost of that? Yeah. So maybe at the end of the day, at a, a major show, maybe you didn't make money. Maybe it cost some money. But what was the entertainment value of that? And is it a justifiable expense to you or not? Yeah. Um, versus going on a fishing trip or a camping trip or whatever, whatever else you might, you know, look at from an entertainment standpoint. So okay. I think there's a there's a, a trade off there that I think every person has to evaluate. 
So, so knowing what you just said there, right? How many people, and, and you've been doing this, you've been setting up six years. How many people would you say in the hobby presently that, and answer it any way you want, as far as the number or percentages or whatever, that this is really more of a hobby, even though we're set up as dealers and we're traveling to shows and we're selling cars behind the table. How many do you, would, would you say is more of a hobby that they're probably at the end of the year, if they had an LLC and they ran this down, they would probably be losing money or putting that up to hobby money versus people who are going out there and saying, yeah, at the end of the year that, you know, I'm, I'm, this is how I'm making a living and, um, you know, making um, an income on it. I would venture to say that the number of people that are probably losing money is, is probably higher than the ones that are making money. I mean, one of the interesting dynamics that we talked about and we noticed is the amount of people that do this full time now, that this is their job. Um, that wasn't the case three years ago, four years ago, maybe. It was, I did this as a side thing, but then a, a lot of people have now turned this into a full-time job and this is their livelihood. Great, all for it. One of our really good friends, this he, this is what he does and he does extremely well at it. Um, but from a, a macro perspective of the hobby, if a person's using this as their full-time job and their income source, every time a show happens, they have to pay all of their travel costs and their expenses and their overhead. And in a perfect world, you're paying yourself a salary of some sort if this is truly your job. Well, that means every show, 10 to 15% of the, the, the money in the community, in the hobby, is being sucked out to pay for expenses. So we, we find ourselves where we have this shrinking pot of, of uh, accessibility to capital because part of that money is coming out of the, of the ecosystem to pay for travel expenses and overhead for these people. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's been an interesting dynamic change over the last several years as you see more and more people doing this kind of full time. I, I think the people that do it full time are very good at it and they probably do very well. Mm -hmm. The average person, you, me, that do this as a kind of a side thing and a fun thing, you know, at the end of the day, maybe you make a little bit, maybe you lose a little bit, but it's it's probably fairly close to a wash. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's a lot of people that probably consistently lose money. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, they, then we say, even though if we're losing money, maybe that money is being paid for, for our entertainment, right? right? For the hobby, for being out there, right? And to, you know, making friends and connections and, and all, all these other things that come along with being in a hobby. And you're, and you're right, because most hobbies, you don't have the opportunity to make money. Right? right. You were talking about fishing and, you know, there's car clubs and all this other stuff, you know, people are, but I mean, and boats, right? I mean, the people are putting all this money into that stuff and they're not getting it out. So when we sit down and we say, okay, well, here's, here's a hobby that, you know, and at some point, right. I mean, it's really what brought me back into it. Right. It was like, okay, I could do this and then make some money and then I can supply my own PC. 
Like I right. can keep taking money out and buying things for myself. So I'm earning the money, selling it, but now I'm turning around and I'm putting it right back into another card because, you know, I have a day job and all kinds of other things and I don't need to make this income to, to survive. Right. And I think that's really what people get caught up in, in the hobby is most of us have a day job and we just really you know, we really like doing this and we love doing this and we want to get out to shows and we look forward to it. And like any, any hobby, right. Has something equivalent to the national, right. Where you look forward to that all year long. And, and it's no matter what's happening, you know, you're going to be there that week, whether you're set up, you're walking around, you're going to be at trade nights, you're going to be meeting up with all kinds of people. Can we put a price on that? Right. And for every person, it's different. You know, I, I mean, for some people, I mean, we see it in the in the card community, you know, for some people at the end of the day, it's decimals and zeros. So, you know, some people play in different, you know, different arenas um, yeah. and, and use different zeros and different decimals. So every person that's that's going to be something they just have to evaluate at the end of the day. Is it worth it or not to me? Mm -hmm. um, and what am I getting out of it? So and when it comes to the LLC, like, is there some type of. Uh, you know, a barometer or something like you could say to somebody, like, if you're here, you should probably set up an LLC. And is that saying if you're just making any money at all, you should set up an LLC? Or if you're, this is truly a hobby where you're just buying and selling and, and it's usually, everything's usually becoming a wash. Is there a need yeah, for I think, that? I mean, yeah, I mean, it, there's definitely a threshold in terms of number of transactions and dollar amounts of transactions and, you know, how much money is being flooded in and out at any given time. Um, obviously, there's, you know, there's IRS kind of red flags of, I mean, you travel across the country and technically you're not supposed to have $10,000 or more in cash flying a plane without declaring it. Now, that doesn't mean that that doesn't happen, but technically speaking yeah. from a banking perspective, you know, eight to $10,000 is kind of a red flag for them when you're doing cash transactions. Um, obviously there's been a lot of conversations around 1099s between eBay and PayPal and what that's going to look like. And they keep kind of moving that target uh, over the last couple of years. They said it was going to be something and then they've kind of backpedaled. So when you start bumping against some of those thresholds, yeah, I, I certainly think there's a case to be made of making it legitimate, creating paper trails to identify here's where things are coming from. Um, but, you know, if it's just a casual and you're not doing a ton and you're not bumping into those kind of thresholds, maybe that's not maybe that's not something you need to worry about. Like, like I said, for us, it was more of a way to create a wall between our personal versus our hobby business. And then I'm also very deliberate from a financial literacy perspective, whether that's my kids or other people that I talk to of, of being financially literate and, and, and understanding what's going on. So part of this has also been with my son, you know, he is a part owner of an LLC and he's establishing credit. Um, he is understanding banking and reconciliation of banking and how to pay bills from, you know, a credit card or a PayPal credit that we may be using and how to do that. Um, the ability to have an earned income if he wasn't working 
and this was his only source of income, the ability to have an earned income to allow him to contribute to a Roth IRA at 17. Um, and these are things I'm talking about at trade nights and, and shows with other people, young and old, and especially that are doing this as a as a full time job. You know, these types of things, you know, establishing a credit profile and good credit history and the ability to start to contribute to Roth IRAs, retirement vehicles, and put some, some of this money back as you're making it. Um, have a lot of conversations about risk management and diversification. You know, if you have, you were talking earlier about the, at one point it was all trade up, trade up and keep getting into bigger, bigger cards. Well, at some point now you have all of your money tied up in one or two big cards that could go up or down in value and maybe not be very liquid. Yep. So as you're going through this journey and you're making money, are you continuing to roll it all back into cards? Um, or maybe we should start looking at diversifying some of that into other things, whether that's investments or gold and silver or whatever your cup of tea. We went through a phase where a lot of these younger guys, it was, I have all my money in cards, crypto and high-end watches. <laughs> and all of those are very correlated together. So looking at non-correlated assets, something that's going to move opposite of the collector's market. Well, mm -hmm. if things get really bad, all of those things are going to go down at the same time. So, you know, how can I, how can I capitalize? The opportunity that has been put in front of a lot of these guys is, is huge. And they've made a ton of money and are continuing to make money. How can I make sure I capitalize on that and don't let it all just go away over time? Yeah. Um, so these are conversations I'm having all the time when we're at shows. Yeah. And, and, and I know there, I know personally a lot of father sons that do this, you know, do this hobby set up at shows and things like that from local shows to bigger shows that uh, they're listening in. I, I bet, I bet they'll reach out to you or just, you know, have some questions on that because I, I don't, I don't think a lot of people really put much thought into, you know, s m making this, making it a legitimate business, but for so many other reasons, you know, when you're talking about the Roth IRA and, and building credit and teaching, you know, financial literacy, things like that. I mean, these, these are skills that I, I really don't think kids learn in school. Right. So no, they don't they, teach they, in school. It's something you either going to learn from your parents or you're going to go out and learn the hard way, you know, try to figure it out on your own out there in the world. Right. So yeah, yeah this, being able to, you know, I, I think you said your son was 17. Is that 17, what you said? Yeah. 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 And I bet you he's more finan financially literate than most 20 something year olds out there at this point of his life, just because, you know, what he's learning here, the skills that these valuable skills, you know, through you, but in the hobby and, and beyond that. Yeah. Well, and then one of the nice things, you, you know, we talked about the 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 sunk cost to going to shows whether you're making money or not so a really good example we drove to atlanta a couple weeks ago so it's an eight and a half hour drive so my 17 year old is stuck in the car with me for eight and a half hours on the drive there and on the drive back and then we're together for 24 hours a day for three days straight mm -hmm. um so the ability for us to have 
conversations and dialogue and talk. And we had extensive conversations. I remember on the drive down there and we were talking about compounding growth, pre-tax and Roth contributions. And he was asking me some questions about it. Those are conversations most people are not having. Um, you know, I, I grew up, I grew up, in a, in a, you know, all the, the three things you don't talk about, you don't talk about money, politics and religion, right, at, at the dinner table or with other people. Yeah. So a lot of people were raised in a, in a family atmosphere where your parents didn't talk about money to you. Um, that was the, their money was their money and it was their business and you didn't talk about those. Yeah. So we've tried to culture a totally different environment. And it doesn't have to be talking about money, but talking about money concepts and, and trying to get, like I said, financial literacy for some of these younger people. And these are things I try to I try to do all the time. I am always I've been in the financial industry for 27 years now. I'm, I I love it. Um, and I'm always open to talk to anybody about any of this stuff. Nice. Nice. Well, tell them. I mean, we're getting to the end now. Tell people if they want to reach out, if they have questions, where, where, where can they reach you, Chris? Um, so the best thing, my IG is Blanket Card Collector. Um, yeah. So I, I have my phone with me all the time. I'm very responsive. And like I said, I'm happy to talk to anybody and everybody about anything, whether it's the LLC, the tax stuff, or just general financial planning. Um, I've had a lot of younger people that I've known for several years now in the industry. And um, I just had a conversation with a guy that's looking at coming into the business and how can I help maybe get you into, into this business? Well, you know, where firms that you should talk to, things that you should look for, red flags to watch out for, things like that. Um, so whether it's card related or not, you know, I'm happy to, happy to help in whatever capacity I can. And what, uh, any, what major show is he going to be setting up at coming up? Have you, do you have any show plans? Um, so I really wanted to go to Burbank. Um, I've heard it's just a phenomenal show. Um, I just, with work right now, it's been a little crazy. So the travel logistics of it just don't really work. So I think our next big show, um, probably Nashville, like early March. Yeah. And then um, we have a phenomenal show. Brad B Sports puts on, um, you, you'll see it on IG up in Shipshawana, so in the middle of Amish country. Um, uh, it's a weekend show, typically over a holiday weekend. That's, I think, the end of March. It's always a great show. Um, what, what state is that in? It's in, in Indiana, so it's northern Indiana, okay. uh, Shipshawana. It's it's so, it's it's very interesting show because it's literally in the middle of Amish country. So you go there and you see horse and buggies everywhere and it, it's a it's a really interesting show but it's it's always a good show so i think we've got nashville um have you done Shushawana. the nashville show have you done the yes. nashville show before yeah yeah we've done it a few times and you set up um, there yes yeah so yeah. typically um so one of our really good friends uh bryce is a joiner joiner cards um he's really he's really made a name for himself he's kind of a kind of a big deal now um, we typically set up with him. And then I was, as mentioned, I got a couple buddies that do whatnot. So Indy breaks three, one, seven and key cards. Um, they'll typically, so we'll, we'll get two tables maybe, and we'll all kind of share table space. And yeah. what's, you've talked a lot about this. It shows what's really nice about that is, you know, you can go walk around and somebody else can watch your table and yeah. then you can watch the table and they can walk around. 
And so it gives you the ability to still be set up as a dealer, sell some cards. Um, I typically like being a dealer on the buy side. People are coming to you to sell stuff. So, um, but setting up with other people, obviously it splits the cost some, but it, it gives you some flexibility to be able to move around and not be stuck at the table all day. Yeah, yeah, that's um, important. And then after that, we've got um, maybe Dallas. Uh, we're still kind of weighing that one. And then um, in June, we have the Midwest Monster here in Indianapolis. That, um, that is always a great show. Uh, we'll have that. And then National um, after that. And, um, do you, set, we'll, we'll do you have, set up at National? So we were set up last year. And yeah. boy, what an experience. You got to see it, too. I mean, yeah. it was intense. Like nothing I'd ever, you know, we've been to National, but never set up. It was, it was an experience. But... Um, this year, I don't think we're going to be set up. I'm holding out hope. I'm crossing fingers that maybe, but um, from what I understand, the Cleveland thing, the the amount of table space and vendor space is going to be cut down pretty dramatically. Yep. So I doubt we're going to be set up this year. I would love to hold out hope and say maybe, but probably not. Yeah. yeah. I know it's tough to get in there. I heard a lot of people talking about a lot of tables, a lot of those extra tables they had in Chicago. They cut out a lot of those going back to Cleveland. So it's yeah, yeah it's going to be tough for people to get um, table space. Yeah. Well, then the dynamics of of the show are going to be interesting too because it's not like Chicago where you've got hotels, you know, multiple hotels right across the street. So yeah. the logistics of the show and trade night events. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting yeah. to see how it plays out. Yeah. So this one here, I was glad I was able to book a hotel that has a kitchenette in it, right? So full-size fridge. And that's my kind of thing because I like to, you know, we talk about the expenses. When I go to these shows, I like to be able to bring my own breakfast, my own lunch. You know, I'll go out for dinner. But the rest of the stuff, you know, you go to these shows and mostly mostly it's, you know, all fried food, you know, yeah. Except for culture collision, did you go to the uh, concessions up there? It was there were salad and fruit cups. I'm like, oh, yeah. this is my kind of place. Yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah. then the mall, the mall being right across, right there, and then the yeah. massive food areas across the street too. So it was, it was a really good location um, yeah. in terms of accessibility. Cleveland, from what I'm seeing, it, not not as much. Um, so it'll be interesting. We're gonna we've been trying to do more of the Airbnb, Airbnb stuff um, yep. because there's, you know, four five, six of us. So oftentimes mm -hmm. it's cheaper. You get a kitchen, um, you, you know, a, a little bit more space to work. Yeah. Um, my, my downfall with that is I can't get, I can't get four or five people to want to go for the whole week. Right. I got, yeah. I'm there Wednesday to Friday. I'm there Thursday to Saturday. I'm there Friday to Sunday. I'm like, well, that's fine. If we rent the house though, I mean, y'all got to pay for the, you know, we, I tried doing the same thing. So finally I was like, I, I just don't think it's going to work out. So I, I made sure I reserved the hotel. Yeah. But it's yep. nice. It's, it's nice to hear that you've got your own wolf pack there and uh, you know, great group of guys that. I think it's um, you know, if you're going to really do this seriously, I, it's almost a necessity mm -hmm. um, you know, one from a community perspective, but two, you know, if you're doing shows, having that extra person to help man the table or you man the table so you can actually go to a show and walk instead of just being stuck behind the table the whole time. But then 
being able to bounce ideas off of people or, you know, if you're trying to come up with a valuation on a car, you know, hey, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And being able to bounce those ideas off of other people and get second opinions, um, it's invaluable. And the more people you bring in, the more, you know, specialty on a sport they'll have, right? So not everybody's going to come in and do football. You're going to have a, like a soccer guy and a basketball yeah. guy. And a, yeah, so, and and that helps a lot too. And especially if you don't know, if you, you, you want to add a card to a deal, right? And now it's becoming a soccer card or something you don't know. It's easy enough yeah. just to take a picture of it or to hold it up to somebody and say, hey, what, what's the value on this? And yeah. is it liquid? And, and there's a lot of times where, you know, we'll be at a show and, you know, we're trying to work a deal out with somebody and it just so happens that, you know, one of the cards that's in the deal is not ours. It's one of our buddies or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's get the deal done and then we'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, we'll figure out what we need to do on our end to make it work. But let's get this deal done. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that's big is you talked about buying cards and where, where do you go for that? But the more people that are in that kind of group, the more outlets you have to both buy and sell. Yep. Um, so it's not just you uh, and what your sources and your outlets are. You've now opened these channels up um, to, to, to have access to a lot more things, um, yep. both on the buy and sell side. So I think if you're going to be in this, you got to build your, you got to build your pack. You got to have your community around you. Yep. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on. This was awesome. Uh, oh yeah, think- absolutely. Love it. I think people are really going to like it. And and I bet you're going to hear from some listeners are going to be reaching out to you on this. So uh, I, I, I'm going to thank you up front for, uh, for, for helping them out because I'm sure they're going to, I'm sure they're going to be reaching out to you. Yep. No, I listen to, I listen, I'm in the car a lot. So I listen to sports card content all the time while I'm driving. So I'm listening to podcast almost every day, all day in the car. So, um, so it's, it's awesome to be able to give back. So. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please like, definitely subscribe, and most importantly, tell a friend and spread the word. Until next time, be good to yourselves and everyone around you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Thanks.